God loves it when his people respond to him the same way we love it when people respond to us. I mean, if somebody reaches out to hug you, you instinctively want to hug them typically. I mean, there's a, there's a few, you know, we got even got a few of those running around our church. They don't shower, um, things like that. And, and, and you know, but I, I still, I'll, I'll still give Crowder a hug when I see him. Um, you know, there's just, there's just, just, God loves that interaction because he loves us. He wants to be with us. He wants to know us. He wants to, wants to, be a part of us. But the deepest level of interaction for us is in our hearts. And, and that's what John's talking about. At the very end of chapter 3, he is, he is encouraging. And from this point on, this little letter to the churches that he, or in the Ephesus area that, that he was writing to and that he had mentored and he had discipled and pastored and loved, he's wanting them in these last couple of chapters in our Bibles of, of this little letter to live a life that is unwavering, to understand that our faith creates a solid base from which we can operate and do every activity of life. And so we don't have to segregate out our, our business or our family or our recreation and our faith. It's interactive at every level. And, Josh, and, and John's commission to us is to make that interaction so deeply a part of our lives that we're unwavering in our faith, that our circumstances do not change at the core who we are. And in this particular section, as he makes the transition from talking about how deeply God has loved us and given his life for us and that commission for us to love one another, as he transitions kind of into this last section of this book, he wants us to remember our strength our confidence, the assurance that we have, the way that the life change that Jesus brings in our hearts impacts every aspect of our lives. Because while we recognize our limitations, we also recognize that God himself in his character, in his personality, in his nature, in his actions, in his capabilities, God is always unlimited, which means our unwavering ability to live out our faith comes out of that relationship, not out of our strength, not out of our capabilities, not out of what we can accomplish, but what God can and will accomplish in and through us. So we talk about unwavering confidence, and I want to share four confidence builders that are contained in this passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 3. This section begins in verse 19. If you're new to the Scriptures, it's towards the end of your New Testament. It's just titled 1 John. Each chapter is broken down by scholars to know how to find references in the Bible. Each chapter is broken down into verses. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, you'll find that in your Bible in 1 John. Go to chapter 3, scroll down, you'll see the little numbers in there. Go to verse 19. Here John wants to remind us that our confidence is built when we understand the accurate reassurance that God can give us. So here's what John writes. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him, that reference to God, before God, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Now here's, here's a key point to understanding what John's writing. He is acknowledging that our hearts have a tendency to condemn us. 
that there are moments when we forget the measurements of our life, we forget the, the depth of God's grace, we forget the extent of His forgiveness, and our hearts take on a condemning, judgmental role in our lives. And in those moments, because we are being condemned internally, because it is, it's us. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard even to describe. It's what's going on in our thought processes. It's what's going on in our heart that's condemning us. And in this case, inaccurately, there is such a good thing as, as conscience. There is a good conscience. There's Holy Spirit-led conscience, which is the one thing we should listen to. This is not God trying to convince us there's an area that needs addressing This is our own hearts convincing us of the thoughts that many of us have. I am not worthy. You can add anything onto that sentence you want. I'm not not worthy of my wife's love. I'm not worthy of my children's love. I'm not worthy of my job. I'm not worthy. You know, I just keep on going on and going on. That's our hearts condemning us. An accurate reassurance is the reminder that God is greater than our hearts. That thought process, that simple thought process, I am not worthy in a biblical context, can be accurate when we recognize I'm not worthy of God's grace. But when I am not worthy because of family of origin issues, when I am not worthy because my circumstances have changed and I don't feel like I have the ability to be an economic part of my family like I once was, I am not worthy because um, physiologically something's changed, I'm not able to get out anymore, I've, I've got health issues that repeatedly bring me down. Those thought processes don't come from God. And God is greater than our hearts in those moments. Because he knows all things. That, that last phrase, go ahead and um, I personally think it's all right to write in your Bible. It's definitely all right to, to highlight in your digital Bible. Just simply click on it. You can even pick your own favorite color. Mine's always light blue, but you can pick it. Some of you engineers, you have the option in your digital Bibles to pick multiple colors. So figure out a category. Highlight this one. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Accurate reassurance is understanding God looks at us through his lens, not ours. And while I was unworthy of forgiveness, and I was unworthy of salvation, and I was unworthy, realistically, accurately, of a relationship with him, God said, that's okay. I'm going to love you in spite of all those truths. And now what John's addressing is when I come up with a new set of truths that are inaccurate because of my perspective— And God is aware of all things in our lives, and He deeply loves us. And even if some of those things are true, He deeply loves us in spite of that. There is not a single person in here, there's not a single person on live stream at this moment, there is not a single individual who has ever picked up this Bible and looked at it and began to read it that didn't come, couldn't come to the singular conclusion that God loves us no matter who we are. Nobody is outside of his care. Nobody's outside of his compassion. And I know, right now, even as I say that in my own heart, so I'm assuming in some of your hearts as well, I'm thinking, but, but, but this, but you don't know this, and nobody else knows this. And if God knows all things, then he's aware of this. And God continues to say exactly what Paul said to the church at Rome, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. 
And we're going to look at, we do modify, life change modifies our life, but life change means we live with a new assessment of who we are as the children of God in relationship with Christ. And when our hearts condemn us, when cancel culture overwhelms us and moves off of the internet, off of social media, into the depths of our heart where we decide we're not capable, we're not worthy, I'm, I'm, however we want to describe that, God says, I'm not canceling you. I love you. I care about you. I created you. I designed you. There is a very real sense in Scripture that when we say what God created isn't good enough, that we are sinning against the very holiness and sovereignty of God. He designed us exactly as we are. There may be flaws and there may be faults because we live in a fallen world, but the hope of salvation is that can be forgiven and in eternity it can be perfected. In heaven, I look like Jesus. And my heart won't condemn me there either. So when our hearts start to condemn us, remember God is greater than our hearts. Greater, God is greater and he knows all things and he knows most importantly the depth at which he loves us. And that can give us unwavering confidence because now it's not a matter of my work ethic or my accomplishments or my credentials. It's a matter of the fact that I am loved unconditionally. Then another confidence builder, this will seem simple to most of us, is answered prayer. But the key here is that it's answered prayers. Look at verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask of him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. We have experience where we have gotten things right, and the Holy Spirit confirms that in our hearts, and as a result, our hearts don't condemn us in those moments because we know we're on the right track. And in those experiences, we know there have been moments in time when we have prayed, and God has answered that prayer. Now, the question comes up is, how many times did God not answer that prayer? And we typically equate that with some major event. Now, here's my encouragement. I don't have the complete understanding of God's mind because just like my heart, God is greater than that, and I don't understand everything that he thinks and everything that he does. And so I can't always answer why in that particularly desperate situation, maybe the prayer or the answer to the prayer wasn't clear. But what I do know is a regular habit of prayer develops answers. And when those answers take place and you hold on to those answers, however you do that, put it on Pinterest, pin it on your refrigerator, put it in your journal, write it on the inside of your Bible. When God answers that prayer, start keeping track of it and start remembering it and build up to it. I did that. I was visiting with one of our deacons this morning about dogs and, and dog training and just the joy of that. And so I'm thinking about it, although today is not a great day in Houston, Texas. It's gloomy and raining and just not one of our better days. Not, not a great day to, to sell the city at this particular point. But when I train a retriever, my ultimate goal is to be able to train that dog to retrieve two to 300 yards away from where I'm at. At two to 300 yards, the dog can't hear me. The dog can only see hand signals that I give it. The dog can only listen to my whistle. And the dog is completely outside of my control unless that dog has experienced repeated behavior that verifies that in that set of circumstances, what I'm wanting is what the dog needs to want and can respond. 
But I don't begin. I don't take a nine-week-old puppy and put her 300 yards out in the field. She begins one foot away from me. And then it builds to three. And it builds to four. Now, the reason she does one foot at a time, quite honestly, is because when she's still within about two to three feet, I can grab her. So if she doesn't want to make the retrieve, I can stop her. I can put her back. I can help her focus because she's a puppy after all. And focus is difficult for a Labrador retriever when they're fully grown and mature. And so at a puppy age, it's nearly impossible. Labrador retrievers are a lot like pastors. We just don't grow up. We, we get weaker, we get older, but we just, you know, the maturity issue's there. And so I work with her up close. So start to pray up close. And when God answers that prayer, you begin to develop a habit and a, and, and a habitual understanding that God's listening to you, that exactly what John's saying here, and John has said this already, and he will say it again before we conclude this letter, God's listening, and if God's listening, he's responding. He's answering our prayers. Because when the day comes, and you're 300 yards out into the field, and you can't hear him because the wind's blowing and it's a perfect duck honey morning with, with gale force winds and clouds down low and weeds are blowing and the water and the salt spray's blowing and you're 300 yards out, you may not be able to hear, but you remember. And when you're in an ICU waiting room and the doctor comes out and says, there's nothing else we can do, your storm is so deep, so severe, so life-threatening that you will only remember what you have made a habit of remembering. And what I remember in those moments is that God answered my prayer on that day when it was a little prayer. And there's no reason to assume that every day, every step, every marker along the way that He answered that prayer, that He won't answer that prayer today in the midst of my crisis. We build confidence by knowing that God answers prayer, and we build that confidence by learning to remember and acknowledge and let Him do that work in us. There is active obedience. Active obedience builds confidence because just like listening and understanding when God answers our prayer, when we're in a situation, we can begin to make decisions appropriately to our new changed lives. And that helps us to be unwavering. Look at verse 23. Now, this is his command. John heard Jesus teach him this. John understood because of his Jewish background that from the, from the Old Testament, Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and all those first five books of the Bible, John understood these are the two things God wants to absolutely cement in our life change, in our activities, in our character. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another as he commanded us. This is an active obedience. It's, it's being obedient all the time, day in and day out. And here's the two things God doesn't want us to fail at. Loving him and loving one another. And yes, I am not trying to make overly simple the, the will of God because there will be complex decisions. When you're sitting in that ICU waiting room and you're feeling like you're 300 yards out in the storm and you can't hear God anymore, you're going to want to default to something you know. And you're not going to be asking yourself, I wonder if it's God's will that I retire or don't retire. I wonder if it's God's will if I work in this place or work in this place. I wonder if it's God's will if I marry this girl or marry this girl. You know, those kind of questions aren't going to seem to matter in that moment. 
And what you will remember is the base of God's expectation. In that moment, God wants you to love him. And in that moment, God wants you to love the people in your life. Do those two things. And God is going to enable you to do that. You can love him. John's going to bring this up, one of my favorite verses in this little letter. That we don't love because we first loved, because we initiated love. We love because God first loved us. When I'm in that waiting room, I'm not praying because I think I'm a good guy. I think I'm a spiritual guy. I think I'm a religious guy. I think I have an insight on who God is. That's not why I'm praying. I'm praying because when I had no insight about who God was, he loved me anyways. And he came into my life, and he wanted to live with me. Why wouldn't I love him? He gave everything for me. Jesus left all the beauty and glory that we just sang about before I got up here for one purpose, to demonstrate to me unequivocally, unquestionably, that he loves me. Jesus' death on the cross was extremely individual. At the same time, it was corporate. Yes, it was corporate. All the church is his bride. All the church is his children. All the church are his saints. All the church throughout all of history are loved by God. In fact, all people, even those who reject him, are still loved by him. But at the same time, any one of us was so deeply loved by God, Jesus would have done the same exact thing. So why not love him? Sometimes we get so hung up, or maybe it's just me and the rebellion that's constantly warring in my heart. That's like, I don't know if I want to obey. I don't want to obey. His love was so deep and so significant and so life-changing. Why wouldn't I want to love him? This isn't a hard command. You do it every day. You woke up this morning, and the kids absolutely just drove you crazy. But if I asked you today, this is a dangerous question. I didn't check with my wife. If you want to give one of them up, I'm assuming you would say no. <laughs> if you'd say yes, we keep counselors on retainer, and we'll help you through this. Love is natural when it's real. And do I really have to be told by John, love God, when I understand how deeply he loves me, cares for me, and is with me at all times? And does it have to be that hard to love one another? If God has loved me with a love that cannot be experienced anyplace else other than in a relationship with him, then why would it be so difficult to love the people around me? Yes, we disagree. We disagree on just about everything. We disagree on hairstyles. We disagree on clothing styles. We disagree on, I mean, we disagree on everything. I can just go on through the list all day long. You, you've run into people this morning already, and you've said, I disagree with him. You're on live stream, and you're sitting on your couch, and sitting in the recliner next to the couch is your husband, and you've already disagreed with him this morning, or vice versa. But it doesn't mean you don't love him. God's love changed my life. And yes, it sometimes seems difficult to me, but remember, my heart is unreliable. If my heart says, I'm having a hard time agreeing or loving this person because we disagree on economics, or we disagree on politics, or we disagree on child raising, or we disagree on whatever we disagree on, it doesn't make me incapable of loving. John says, active obedience Active obedience helps us live with confidence because I know what I'm doing is what God wants me to do.
If I know at the end of the day that I have loved him and I've loved the people I've come in contact with, I can go to sleep at peace. There may be a whole list of other things that needed to be addressed that day, but I can address those tomorrow because life change is an ongoing, continuous process. Active obedience gives us confidence. And last but not least, by any stretch of the imagination, is available presence. In verse 24, John says this, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Proximity is huge. You know, when I'm watching that TV show, I like to just look over at my wife and I'm just glad she's there. And in that moment that seems so calm and so peaceful and so happy, I have developed a lifetime relationship that I know when the worst moment comes. If there's any one person I can count on, it's going to be her. It's just a lot like prayer. The more you experience Jesus every day, the more you'll know he's with you. He's there beside you available presence. God didn't call us to religion or to church. He called us to a relationship. And he said, I will be with you always. No questions, no exceptions. I will be with you. I walk with you. I'm beside you. One of the very first songs I heard is a song we're going to sing right now. And the very first word just struck with me. And, and I'll be honest, I wasn't great at Old English, and so it took a while to actually figure it out. Just the simple words, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Here it is in English and living today as our team comes and prepares to lead us in singing this. I have confidence, unwavering confidence because I know Jesus and Jesus knows me. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I asked Jesus to be a part of my life and he never turned me down. And if you ask Jesus to be a part of your life today, he won't turn you down either. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. One day, I'm going to be in a place where my heart never condemns me again. And it's his house. All the names for heaven are great, and all the descriptions of heaven are great, and I don't want to take away from any of that. But the image in Scripture, in the Bible, that means the most to me is the thought of being in his house. If I was to wake up unaware, I'd just walk into the kitchen, and Jesus is there. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. It's just a simple way of saying, I can't wait till I'm in heaven.